Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. What's going on? I, I, I feel like I have to congratulate you. you. You had a really big deal happen this week. What are you talking about? <laughs> That's not even what I'm oh, talking I t- I about. I thought for sure you were talking about the <laughs> chips, but I'm going to keep eating them. <laughs> I want to congratulate you first on something, and then you can tell us about the chips because it is that's actually a bigger deal. Okay, go uh, for it. I saw a little blue check mark. Oh my god! I saw a little blue check mark beside oh your my name. God. Let's not talk about that. That's so weird. Why, why did you bring that up <laughs> to, to make you say that? Uh, anyway, more importantly, more importantly, so um, I don't know if we've actually talked about this on the air. I think we have, but Nora. Um, about a year and a half ago, agreed to get me some all dress chips, and I'm happy oh, to say, dear listeners, <laughs> I'm happy to say, dear listeners, that she never fucking did. She's just a giant liar. <laughs> she never <laughs> shipped me the all dress chips. But last week, in the depths of the sadness that is COVID, I broke and I just searched and searched like, where can I get the all dress chips in the United States of America? And I found. I found a distant Target where they were being sold and I had them shipped to my house. It took two weeks. I don't know why <laughs> it took two weeks. And I got I got the all-dressed chips and I opened the bag and I ate it and it doesn't really taste like all-dressed. It's very close though. It's like a muted all-dressed chip. And I'm happy about it. And screw, screw you, Nora. You and your web of lies and broken promises. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Um, it's so funny because I was like, I was thinking about um, chips and I was like, oh shit. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> and then, um, and then some folks on the discord, which I will say, um, if you're listening to this on Tuesday, I'm going to update our discord invite um, at Instagram in our bio. So you can join us out there. Um, although we're not the best in, uh, dis- discorders, but anyway. Um, and so someone someone mentioned it. Uh, they mentioned how happy you were uh, with some all-dressed chips, and I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you remembered your broken promises and web of lies. <laughs> well, better than broken promises and web of lies, um, something that I am hoping um, our listeners can help us out with uh, over at Black Lives Matter, we are running a mutual aid campaign the month of February, Uh, We got a grant of $250,000 to have a uh, kind of like an unfettered COVID support emergency funds uh, for black people in Canada. And so um, with that, we're going to be able to give out a thousand micro grants of $250 um, or 500 micro, a thousand micro grants of $250, sorry. Uh, And we want to be able to double that. Um, and so we're doing a fundraising campaign. And so if you've seen that, if you could share that, if you have the ability to contribute to that, please do. All the funds are going directly out. Um, and uh, hopefully you can support that. That sounds awesome. Mm-hmm. We're also recording this on February 14th, which is Nora. Today's the day. Um, and of course, you're listening to this after the fact. So hopefully you had a, a moment to take action. Um, but today's a day that remembers all of the indigenous women, girls, the two-spirit people who have gone missing or have been murdered in Canada. And so we wanted to recognize that. And to, to just remind people, I mean, I heard on the news this morning um, a positive report about the advancement that the federal government has has had, has 
made with the recommendations from the final report of the inquiry into murdered and missing women and girls. And I was just like, what? Like, there's been advancement? Because last time I heard the federal government was way behind. So we'll have to maybe update everybody a little bit more about the progress of implementing those recommendations. But um, that is something that you should definitely be paying attention to. And you should be definitely tracking the federal government's progress uh, on just meeting these report recommendations, which they had committed to and have yet to deliver. Mm-hmm. Okay, so before we get into our main topic for the night, Nora, do we have people to thank? We do. This week, I want to thank you so very much to Peter, Wendy, Heather, Lucy, Hua, Yasmin, and Matthew. Thank you so much for your financial support and to everybody that listens to us. Thank you for your support. And I also have to say, I'm, I've been really bad with responding to messages. Um, everyone on Instagram, I'm actually committing to you. I will respond. Not in the same way I committed to Sandy to send all dress chips, um, but I will, <laughs> Don't I will trust respond. It. Don't trust it. <laughs> And if you have been in touch with us through another alter- like another means, like through our website, our website's been inundated with spam. So it's been really, really hard actually to keep on track of stuff. So um, sorry, as all I can say, keep trying. <laughs> yeah, those um, prescription pills comments are <laughs> just uh, oh. really great um, to get into your inbox uh, to your phone. Yeah, every few hours, it's been excellent. Um, Okay, so what we want to talk to you about today is a a very important... just before we get there. Never mind, Nora, go. <laughs> I just want to give a brief update to a story I talked about last week. Um, and so there... Oh, sorry. Yes. Um, so since last week, the Baffinland Iron Mines Corporation has actually um, filed an injunction to stop protesters who are trying to stop the expansion of this mine at the, at the Mary River site. And so the group uh, that has been protesting this, they are called the Nulujat land guardians and i hope that everyone will look up their struggle and support them uh in the demands in their demands but also if they're asking for some material support too um the the mary river mine um they're the the company's trying to double the size of the mine they're trying to lay rail into the mine and um it's actually like at the primary entrance to um the habitat of narwhal within the canadian north so um, to check that out. Make sure that's something that you're paying attention to and support that struggle if you are able to. Okay, so we want to talk to you folks about today uh, Bill C-7, which is a bill that is making its way through Senate right now. And it is the Medical Assistance in Dying Bill, which, you know, you may have over the years heard some arguments as to why it is progressive to allow people to make, uh, you know, the important decision about whether or not they want to continue to live or uh, whether they would rather end their lives and whether or not people should have the right to to choose their destiny in that way. And um, the typical uh, conversation that doesn't come with a lot of nuance that has been raised by a lot of uh, racialized activists in the last, uh, um, since this bill has started making its way through uh, legislation, through to legislation. 
um, didn't really factor into these argument into these discussions over the years. And I think it's of critical importance that we do talk about uh, these things right now, because we might be heading to a situation in Canada where um, medical assistance in dying bill is passed. Um, but other necessary changes aren't made that would allow this to to be um, a good news story that we could celebrate. Um, you know, the the there are a number of deficiencies that currently exist in the way that we uh, provide care and the way that we uh, support the living. And if we don't support life in the way that it needs to be supported and we have this this medically medical assistance in dying um, that may lead to situations where um, uh, death isn't necessarily a choice at all in the way that we would want it to be um, in supporting a bill like this. Yeah. So I wrote something about this for passage and in writing that I, I wrote it um, early last week and in writing it, I watched some of the Senate committee hearings to see how the debate was playing out. And it was very illuminating because it's it's obvious if you think about it, but it may not be something that you've thought about. The, the debate is really divided among two sides. There's the side of um, people, so palliative care doctors or doctors who administer MAID or, um, you know, a husband saying that their wife's final moments that she chose because she was, you know, at the end of her life were very beautiful and telling all these kinds of beautiful stories. And then on the other side, you had people who have never been treated with dignity by the Canadian healthcare system, have never been able to have freedom of, of, of choice or freedom of movement or freedom to decide where they live or uh, are often at the whim of um, how good the people around them are to help with like daily daily lives or with tasks. And oftentimes the people that there aren't enough support, so the people are, are degrading and 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 making life even more terrible. And in all of this um, kind of discussion, there was a story that came out of Hamilton, um, or sorry, out of Niagara Falls, of a 35-year-old man who was living with um, a disability and chose MAID, partly argued by his family um, because of the conditions that he was living in were so horrible. And he was living in a long-term care facility that was owned by a family um, that owns other long-term care facilities and retirement residences, assisted living facilities um, that were so disgusting that the ministry had actually revoked their license and the family was in the process of appealing that decision. And so it's like there's two completely different debates that are happening. And what's very uh, annoying, uh, to say the, 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 the least, I think it's like eugenics to say the worst, but it, it, what's, what's most troubling is that there doesn't seem to be any interest from the side that's the dominant side in this, the side that's the Liberal Party of Canada pushing this legislation forward, trying to make sure that, you know, everyone has a dignified death and all this kind of stuff, um, to even appreciate the fact that people with disabilities in this country have so few choices and so few access to resources and so few services that work for them that that oftentimes, thanks to the uh, ableism and the racism and the colonialism built into the Canadian healthcare system, just like all other systems, that people are, are, are actually told to consider medically assistance, medical assistance in dying 
when they have a whole life to live. Um, and this, the, 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 the bill right now is being amended to um, allow for made in cases where death is not reasonably foreseeable. And then the Senate just put forward an amendment that passed. And so this is part of the legislation now, too, to allow for someone to choose medically, medical assistance in dying if the only disability they have is mental health, is related to their mental health, uh, which is new to the bill because it was originally mental health but also had to be accompanied by another disability. And so, yeah, so 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 disability uh, justice activists have been raising the alarm bells, and I've seen more and more about it, although the first time I heard about it was back in November. I mean, this has been going on for quite a while, and the deadline from this to to deal with this at the Supreme Court has been has been coming up. I mean, it's it's at the end of this month. And it's just so indicative of where the federal liberals are in how they look at the medical system and people living with disabilities in this country and not at all understanding how their literal actions are creating such harm and misery among people who live with disabilities in this country. Yeah, it's it's a it's a very like a, a privileged way of looking at the world. It's this um, this way of taking a look at the landscape and saying, you know, the people who would be interested in made are people who look like this. And then the story that's told, um, the uh, arguments that are put forward are only about the certain group of people who generally have good access to healthcare, who are well supported um, in in their living and will be well supported in their dying if they so choose to do if they choose to take that route. But what activists are rightly raising is that we actually 100 percent not not a controversial comment to make do not have by any means close to uh, any measure of equity in the way that uh, people have access to a, a good life um, and support in their medical care support for their disabilities um, uh, in such that they are able to make a true choice about living or about made. And so, you know, uh, that, of course, is going to uh, impact people who um, are living in poverty uh, and experiencing a disability or experiencing a mental health issue or whatever it may be. And it's going to impact people who don't have the resources to support uh, perhaps um, uh, the types of uh, medical care support that they need. Uh, it's also going to support uh, impact people who are racialized and indigenous um, who also have a disability more than others uh, because of the way that intersectionality plays into um, this reality. And so how can we honestly move forward with saying that, you know, we are ready for made when we have a situation where, um, you know, some of the most disgusting and unlivable uh, circumstances are being forced onto people with disabilities who who just simply don't have the resources um, to uh, uh, to to support a, a life in the way that uh, our system is set up to require people to have resources to support life in a particular way. And I mean, I think that this is. So obvious right now, too, uh, in the context of 
COVID-19, where we have been seeing some of the, uh, you know, some some really massive consequences um, of people, you know, who live uh, with, with uh, disabilities or people who uh, are uh, dependent on others to support their living and what happens when on a grand scale our uh, society just fails to support that living um, with uh, made passing and a situation like what we have in long-term care facilities for example um, what what do those two things those two realities together equal um, I think it it equals uh, a really um, uh, unequal access to life, to a life with dignity, let alone a dignified death. Well, I'm looking at the COVID crisis across the healthcare system and obviously across long-term care and residential care and assisted living. It, it, it's pretty clear that the Canadian healthcare system is in crisis and it has been in crisis for a long time. And so if you think about the fact that hospitals have been systemically underfunded, how hallway medicine is totally normal now. Um, I was looking at statistics for the, um, the, the, the greater Niagara hospital region, and they were like regularly at uh, 103%, and then that would go up to like well over 100% in, in, in times of like, you know, high levels of the flu. So you can imagine what that system looks like right now under COVID. And there's just mm-hmm. been so... Um, little political uh, attention paid to the healthcare system that um, it's just continued to to you know fall apart and uh, and politicians and, and journalists fuck like oh I should rant about this but <laughs> maybe I will maybe I will talk about the current I don't know maybe I shouldn't maybe I should fucking stop listening to the current <laughs> but the you know oh, there's no. a big fight right now about whether or not this is provincial jurisdiction or federal jurisdiction and then you got someone like Susan Delacourt who's like the Toronto Star's like fucking national fucking chief shitty fucking columnist I'm not sure exactly what. Uh, you know, insisting that national standards aren't the answer. We just need to have more pay as if pay couldn't be a fucking national standard. She said that on, on Friday morning on The Current. Um, and no one laughed. I mean, that's the thing that doesn't make any sense to me. Like, none, no one else on the panel was like, oh, Susan, what the fuck are you talking about? They're like, oh, mm, 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 stroking my chin, but you cannot see me. Um, and so, you know, we have this, like, federal uh, healthcare system that gets mired in these um, constitutional, fake constitutional um, discussions because, of course, it's like the Canada Health Act. Like, you literally can put in national standards. That exists. That is something that exists, and you can do that. And um, when we hit this crisis during COVID and it's it's like, oh, my God, wow, maybe having ignored and butchered and and injured the healthcare system was a bad fucking idea. And so here we are in the middle of a pandemic and all of the inaction on healthcare is now completely bearing itself to be obvious. And the federal government's on the cusp of amending the only piece of legislation that they've passed that has had any substantive health care implications in the, in, in the last, like, what, 20 years, 30 years? And it's to give people the right to, to, to end their lives. Like, obviously, people are going to be pissed when you've let everything else turn to shit, but you're going to make it easier for people to end their lives. I I just like do the liberals not see how completely fucked up this is? Yeah, I mean, I it, Sarah Jama, uh, who is who is one of the founders of the Disability Justice Network of Ontario, and has been doing a lot of activism on this particular 
uh, issue uh, has this has this like tweet that's pinned to her profile on Twitter that kind of um, explains the way that we need to shift our thinking around uh, how we discuss care and disability. Uh, she says, we don't really need long-term care homes if we understand aging and disability as inevitable. We must restructure society to fund accessible homes, full attendant care, all medical and assistive devices, proper palliative care, etc. And without this, we are coercing families into separation. And, you know, beyond the uh, separation, it's, it's more than just separation. You know, we're also... Um, creating a a system where people are uh, being where the system that can afford to take care of people and can afford um, uh, to provide a dignified life for everyone it absolutely can't afford to do these things is choosing eugenics it is choosing to say like these people do not deserve um, uh, a dignified life in our society, and rather, these are all the other things that we're going to fund, and these are all the other things um, that we're going to do. And meanwhile, for those people who um, have a more privileged situation where they can pay for these sorts of things, we will give you the option of a dignified death. And you know, like again, as I say, this is not this is not a true choice uh, for people who who uh, for whom life has been made unlivable because of the refusal of the system to engage um uh, uh to 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 actually put real money and support and action uh, behind providing um a dignified life for all people back in august uh just out front of the national assembly someone named Jonathan Marchand who's 43 years old and lives with a disability that requires pretty regular care, uh, he moved himself into a prison box, a prison cell, and protested the conditions of where he lived, which is which was a CHSLD, a long-term care facility in, uh, in Quebec City. And he raised the um, the connections between the horrible living conditions that allowed COVID to run rampant in long-term care uh, in Quebec for sure and across Canada as well, but also as being a young man uh, with a family uh, living in the most horrible conditions. And um, it got some coverage in Quebec. It didn't really um, get coverage outside of Quebec, but it got coverage kind of in the context of, right, well, we all know that CHSL days are bad and that they all need to be reformed. And it's like, yeah, that, <laughs> like, Sarah is so right. This whole idea that people need to be institutionalized if they need to have more constant care is so fucked up. It's it's just like it's not one more example of how Canada really doesn't value uh, people's lives equally. And like, why wouldn't we have a system of fully funded home care? Why wouldn't people have free access to assistive devices? Why do we just allow like the Bells and the Rogers and the Telluses and the Westons and all of these ultra like rich individuals or rich corporations just take money from us all the time, hide their taxes somewhere? I mean, news just came out 
um, this past week that Rivera, which is the largest uh, long-term care uh, facility operator, one of the largest in Canada, which is owned by the Pension Board of Canada. Uh, and so, you know, its directors are appointed by order and council from the prime minister's office or from the cabinet office. I'm not sure which one. But they um, have this elaborate structure in the UK that helps to reduce how much taxes they're paying. And this was a study that was not done by Canadian researchers. It was done by Australian researchers. And they chose the UK, even though Rivera is a Canadian company and um, also operates in the United States, because the information is not even available in Canada for their corporate structure and how much money they may be dodging and paying taxes. And even if they're paying all of their taxes, they're not paying more than 7% of their of their ridiculous profits. And so, you know, th- th- this, is a, this is an issue that cuts to the core of what happens when capitalism tries to organize a society. And it's really, um, it's really funny in a not a funny haha way um, that the liberals are so hell bent in making sure that it just continues to get worse for the most marginalized under the cover that it will be be good news for people who are not marginalized. And, you know, and this is where the NDP needs to fucking get a clue because the NDP voted for the for the legislation as well. And, you know, there's debate happening now within the NDP. I don't know if they'll have a free vote, but one of the biggest proponents of this legislation is a is an NDP um, MP and um, and the bloc will likely support it, too. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. But like the federal liberals could have invoked the notwithstanding clause and left the bill unconstitutional and imperfect and tried to give themselves maybe more time with an unconstitutional piece of legislation that they said, well, we're invoking Section 33, so that's what it is, rather than try to, like, send it to the fucking Senate to do this, like, really elaborate study to try and, like, determine what a bunch of rich people think is the best way that they want to die. It's it's so perverse. Mm-hmm. It really is. And um, another uh, person on, on Twitter who has made um, a uh, some really salient points with respect to this is Sarah Luderman. And one of the points that Sarah makes really um, uh, that we should really think about is the way that just generally health uh, is discussed in Canada, um, how we discuss uh, um, and how perversely we discuss uh, cutting costs all the time with respect to health. And so uh, in in a system where the government is is so resistant, is so like is it's the way that they respond to spending more money on health is like with repulsion or something. It's just like they, they cannot, they're always talking about efficiencies and cutting costs and so on. Bill C7 um, uh, is, is really, really concerning because uh, what happens is that uh, people, uh, the government uh, who's making these decisions about where to spend, uh, they're looking at, you know, where they can save money. That, that translates to people dying. That translates to uh, people not being well cared for, um, which leads to their deaths. And it also translates uh, for something like MAID to a situation where the government um, could be potentially asking themselves questions and, uh, uh, about who is worth supporting, whose lives are worth supporting. And that's really scary. Uh, that's uh, really difficult, uh, dis- uh, really disgusting. If we are, um, you know, if we look at health uh, in terms of cost rather than in terms of dignity and supporting life uh, and, uh, you know, making assessments based on who is 
expensive. I mean, it's just, like the you can see how this is like a you this is um, a uh, a move that supports a eugenicist model of care. And uh, I, I'm really concerned about it. At the f- the fact that it's, um, it looks like it's going to uh, go through, is really concerning. So, um, the Disability Justice Network of Ontario has been supporting people through uh, making phone zaps uh, to the Senate. So I really encourage you uh, to to look them up and to to join their actions uh, in terms of contacting uh, your senators and contacting. Uh, your your MPs um, before the votes come up on this. Yeah, I, I just keep coming back to how much is on display of our completely rotten and eugenic approach to healthcare in everything that we've seen in the COVID crisis and the the, the direct link. Um, and so I want to talk a bit about how those how these two issues really intersect. So first of all, you know, the, the coverage within the press has really shifted to these variants, right? There's all these COVID variants that are coming from other parts of the world where the virus has had enough time to circulate that it's, you know, mutating into certain ways. And now we need to be afraid of the variants. And it's it's like another... <laughs> Another story where where media and politicians would just rather have kind of like a a, a conversation on the shiny new part of the pandemic rather than talking about the systemic and widespread abuses that that exist within long-term care. And so one thing that I haven't seen almost any news, like I've seen a couple of local reports on this, but almost any news on this, is the fact that there's been at least 11 deaths at Waypoint, the mental health hospital in Penetanguishene. And that would be like, you know, well, maybe we don't know. Maybe it's hard to know because public hospitals are not always reporting um, who's dying from COVID within their walls. But that would make Waypoint uh, probably the deadliest uh, hospital for mental health patients in Canada. And it seems like that should be big news. That should be front page news. What the hell is going on there? They're, They're a hospital. Like they should have these infection controls down like what is what is happening but again we're not we're not getting that news because we're hearing about the the variants and you know variants are important but they're not i think that they're being used in this way to not talk about these these issues and also last week in a town called Cordis Ontario there's a retirement residence called uh, the White Cliff Terrace retirement residences and owners there uh, actually removed the doorknobs of residents who had COVID to stop them from leaving their rooms. Oh, my God. I, did, I saw that story. It's it's oh my God. That one really I mean, it, it, all these stories really tear my heart open. But that is like just so fucking repulsive. Who thinks of doing things like this? It's just so awful. Like, like I, like many people, I'm sure, have thought a lot about how frightening it would be if I had COVID and if the COVID that I had was serious, right? Serious enough for me to be worried about it. And if on top of that, I was living in a place where I had very little autonomy. And now this is a retirement residence. It might be an assisted living facility, but it's not long-term care. It's a retirement residence. And imagining that you couldn't even get out of your bedroom because like the management of the building you live in has removed the doorknobs from it. It like that's normal. Like someone thought that this was a fucking good idea because clearly 
they've had that thought before. You don't just go from zero to, I know, I'm going to fucking forcefully confine people. Like, that's that's going to be our infection control. And this is happening at month 11 of the pandemic. So you can imagine that someone who lives in assisted living for their entire life, the indignities, the horrible conditions that they might be subject to, probably are subject to, and and for the biggest advance in in healthcare in a generation at the federal level to be like their right to 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 take their own lives <laughs> it's as if the liberals are like hoping no one's paying attention it really has felt like that and activists like like folks at the disability justice network of ontario um i have to shout out gabrielle peters who's been so generous with me with her knowledge um and sharing information and just sharing her experiences she's been um one of the really major voices as well on on twitter she's um ms sine nomine like th- this is reality in this country and it should not have taken a pandemic for people to see it. And a lot of people knew this. A lot of people have seen the inside of, of, of assisted uh, living in this country. But <laughs> what are we going to do about it? Like how if we can't stop this piece of legislation, let's say what the what the fuck? Like what's it going to take to convince the liberals to do something? And this is the liberal party who fucking did absolutely nothing for the poorest Canadians during this pandemic. Literally fucking nothing. For people living with disabilities and only some people living with disabilities, they were giving a one-time $600 check for 11 fucking months of living through this pandemic. So what are we going to do? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned not seeing these things on the news. I mean, part of part of the issue of why we're not seeing it on the news now during COVID is because we, we never saw this stuff on the news. You know, the news never covered... Um, uh, some of the the atrocities that are um, regular in long-term care facilities. Uh, and I say this with uh, some measure of knowledge because both of my parents, both of my grandparents um, that were alive while I, while I have been here um, uh, and several of my aunts and uncles all worked in long-term care facilities. And it became this, um, you know, this discussion uh, as, you know, my whole family uh, are, uh, have migrated from, from Jamaica. It became this discussion around dinner tables and at uh, holiday uh, gatherings that, oh my goodness, to, the, to our children, please, 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 please never put us in long-term care facilities. Um, all of my family who's worked in long-term care facilities have been um, uh, in that generation have been largely support staff. So assisting in laundry or assisting in the kitchen or, uh, or that sort of work and just seeing how people are treated on a regular basis. It's, it's been at a crisis level, um, since far before COVID. And, um, uh, this just kind of brings things into, into sharp relief, uh, for us. And I think that we, we definitely have a responsibility to make sure, um, that uh, just this, these disgusting conditions cannot continue. I just, it, it really does uh, make the skin crawl to think about just how, uh, little, um, how little the government cares, uh, about how their policies are really, um, uh, eugenist policies are, are really just des- deciding who is who is worth having uh, a life and who who is not worth it. And that it's just just so it makes my skin crawl, and I'm 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 really disgusted by it. 
Another thing that's uh, somewhat related to this is uh, is this news that's come out in um, in the last little bit as well about the shortage of care staff, of care professionals, uh, nurses, uh, doctors, and so on in Canada, which as we know, is about to get a lot worse um, as people are choosing to leave a prof- uh, professions, especially nursing, where, you know, you're just so, so disrespected and um, uh, not, uh, you know, these are not, I would say, uh, you know, these are not good jobs in the way that we think about good jobs um, uh, or what makes a good job. And, uh, you know, we we have this shortage and we've had this shortage for a while. And that is uh, related uh, to the, um, the the very necessary types of care that nurses provide uh, to all sorts of people who, who need all sorts of different types of care. And it's like, oh, my God, if we've been struggling with this, then why don't we just why don't we simply uh, remove the barrier? to becoming a nurse like why why don't we do these things so that we can have the resources um, that like 100% exist here to provide the care uh, that people need it's so funny like thinking about how much Canada has changed um, like my family is does not have the same history and care as your family Sandy but my grandmother was an operating room nurse for her whole career and thinking about how someone who was low income from northern Ontario, uh, Italian, which kind of made a big, big difference, a little bit of a big difference in the 1950s, um, how she became like an OR nurse and spent 52 years in the operating room. Like that would have been impossible if tuition fees were what they are today, obviously, um, probably if tuition fees were what they were, um, you know, even even two decades mm-hmm. ago. And so. Mm-hmm. The fact that there hasn't been a serious conversation about those barriers to enter healthcare, are it's again, it's just that there's no like the liberals are such pieces of they're such fucking weasel shitheads, and 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 fuck you the NDP as well for trying to play the liberal game because you are fucking it up. But I don't know if we'll have time to go back to that thought, but. Like it is so expensive to get into these fields, into nursing, into and obviously to be a doctor, and then it is so impossible to live because it's so poorly paid to work in any other aspect of healthcare. And so, you know, I had someone who was in touch with me talking about how when she was on welfare, she was like very actively pushed by caseworkers to become a PSW as her ticket out of welfare. And she was like, what the fuck? Like, I don't want to do that. Like, like it was very clear that they were preying on low income people to be like, this is women, of course, because I also know that, um, you know, the other people are pushed into jobs like at Amazon and other distribution factories and or fact, um, distribution centers and, and such. But again, yeah, like you've got to pay for this. You've got to pay for the people on the low end of the of the spectrum for for the salary. And then you have to let people study for free to get into these fields. This is this is so fucking obvious. It's a no brainer. When Quebec promised to put 10,000 new personal care workers into the system in June at the at just just after the first wave. It was kind of like, okay, good luck. And not only did they almost do it, they got 7,000 people working in the fall after an intensive summer courses. They, they were not expected to pay for those courses. 
They had that for free. That was the only way that you can get people into the system fast. And people wanted to sign up because I've also seen a lot of conversations about how like no one's going to want to work in these jobs anyway, because they're obviously just so terrible jobs. Like they're, the, the job, the structure of the job is terrible, but there's a lot of people that want to care for other people. That's a, that's a very important, really noble path to care for someone else for your career. Like that's, we all need that. Every one of us has ever had any contact with the healthcare system knows the difference between having someone who cares for you and having someone who's like just getting through the day and doesn't really have time to get you another blanket or clean up the blood that spilled and they're taking your blood on your blanket. It's just like why there's no conversation from the left, from the formal left, obviously there's a lot of activists having this conversation, tying in the, 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 the question of cost and the barriers of cost is fucking beyond me because it's like this is all extremely obvious and extremely connected. And can the NDP fucking do something? Can they fucking talk about something that isn't like the literal bare minimum? Is this possible? And it's extremely fixable. Like it's just, it just, it it is so extremely fixable. There's so much um, that can be done to 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 just turn the system around. Like I, you know, there. I I just mentioned how much of my family had worked in support staff uh, roles in long term care facilities. Um, several of those people had been trained as nurses in Jamaica. And weren't able to to be nurses uh, uh, when they were here, um, and you know could have provided those those types uh, of support um, uh, while um, while here and 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 make up for the gaps that we have uh, in Canada. But the system refuses to acknowledge people who are trained in particular uh, parts of the world, even when that makes no sense. Like. A country like Jamaica, people may not know, like the entire education system is is basically modeled off of the British system, so much so that all the standardized tests come from Britain. They're all shipped from Britain. And the entire, the, the whole way that uh, the the um, uh, credential system is, is, uh, is, is uh, constructed is so that it follows the British system because so many people are traveling throughout the the Commonwealth and because of fucking colonialism. That's how it works. And so Canada will accept people from particular countries like Britain, but not from the poorer countries of the the Commonwealth. It's so bizarre. I mean, it's not bizarre if you just accept racism, but it's like, except that this is the way that racism works. But it's just like, it just feels really obvious that there are um, obvious solutions to these things. And it's like, Man, like I, God, I, I've listened over my life growing up to so many stories of my, uh, of people in my family, you know, who are working in these jobs, coming across people daily who are begging for help, like literally begging uh, for assistance and who are living in these homes and saying, can you please help me? Can you get me out of here? Um, and uh, constantly um, confronted with that, like uh, with the reality of how people are treated and how disgusting it is in these homes. And I mean, disgusting in that, like the whole system is disgusting, but also like it's like gross <laughs> in there. Like I just, it just really fucking blows. Like I, what is it like to be a politician <laughs> to have and to, and to have these decisions right in front of you where you can decide, hmm, today I could purchase a pipeline that's never going to get built or 
Or I could provide a life of dignity and extend uh, the ability of people to live for millions of people across the country. I will buy the pipeline. Like who, what, what does it, how, how do you, what is it like (laughs) to be a politician and make those types of decisions? I don't understand it. I really don't. It just, I, I don't understand how so many of these people can even live with themselves. No, and we should be, like, reminding them of that every single fucking day. Like, none of these people should have a moment of peace. And so I know, Sandy, you mentioned that there's a a ZAP action um, that the Disability Justice Network of Ontario is organizing. I know that showing up for racial justice, Surge is also doing that. So you can look up S-U-R-J. And even though these, like, the folks I know at Surge and DJNO are Ontario and Toronto-based, but I imagine, I'm not sure, do you know if that you can plug in if you're not necessarily in Ontario? Yeah. Um, so there's also a Kill Bill C7 toolkit that's going around online, and um, it's been created by the Disability Student Law Society of Windsor. And so uh, we can share that um, from our Twitters and also we'll share it on Instagram and uh, perhaps put it in the show notes um, that gives a bunch of information as to why Bill C-7 is problematic. And it also um, has uh, ways to contact your MPs and so on. There's also Dignity Denied, which is an organization that uh, the person I'd already mentioned, Gabrielle Peters, she's involved with it and a lot of other folks are too. So if you look up Dignity Denied, um, they have a whole toolkit as well with resources and suggestions for how to get involved. So regardless of where you are located uh, in Canada, you should be able to find the information that you need to be in touch with your local MP. And you should be in touch with your local MP about this. Like this is uh, really crucial. This is really uh, critical. Um, and uh, this type of action uh, or this type of, uh, of bill being passed is going to just be so awful for so many people. And so come on, let's uh, do what we can. Let's take action. Let's support um, the the folks who are organizing around this. Um, Just make the simple call uh, to your MPs, but do more than that if you can. Um, Share uh, the information that's um, uh, going around from these organizations uh, about why this is bad. And let's turn the tide and um, uh, make this a piece of legislation that that cannot pass by the end of this month. Mm-hmm. 